standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 168 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I went on the Dodgems. Ooh, where did you do that? Canvey Island. Canvey Island, eh? Eh? I don't think I've ever been there. I love a fairground. Are you a fairground fan, Jen? I'm not not a fairground fan. Favourite ride? Oh, probably the waltzer. Scream if you want to go faster. In Harwich, obviously, as a ute, there wasn't a huge amount going on. So, like, the fair was always, like, a major event. There'd be, like, three rides and it seemed to get, like, smaller and shitter every year. And then it's basically just, like, who can snog the waltzer boy? It was never me, by the way. You're never too old to snog the waltzer boy. Oh, yeah, maybe. I think I might be now. <laughs> it depends how old the waltzer boy is, but I imagine probably. Get yourself to Canby Island, Jen, because the waltzer boy looks about 40. Oh, wicked. That's uh, right on brand then. I'm Jen Offord, and on Saturday I made my League One debut. On the pitch? No, I went to a football match for the first time in about 18 months. Um, Charlton Athletic lost 2-0 to Wigan, so what a time. Also, I heard some people booing when the players took the knee. I might talk about that in sport later. I'm not sure yet. Great, that's something to uh, look forward yeah. to. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> later on, Hannah chats to actor Neve Algar about Deceit, the Channel 4 drama about the honey trapping of Colin Stagg. Her new film, Censor, which is out in cinemas this week, and working with Stephen Graham because, you know, Hannah. Stephen Graham. <laughs> Hannah. Yeah. It's, it's a very Hannah interview. I chat to journalist Rachel Thompson about her new book, Rough, How Violence Made Its Way Into the Bedroom. Spoiler alert, not necessarily as you'd imagine. Window? No? <laughs> Up the step. Anyway. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be talking golf again, I know, cycling and more as I round up all the latest action in women's sport. And in Rated or Dated, Beware the Moon! Ooh. We're watching 1981's An American Werewolf in London. But first, beef, bikes and a frankly unworkable holiday policy. <laughs> it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q-Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. We're sorry, we can't get to the phone right now. Please leave a message after the fall of Kabul. And to Afghanistan. So we all agree that Joe Biden has dealt with the withdrawal of US troops from the country badly, right? Never trust a man to withdraw, Jen. <laughs> exactly. Do you know what? This is an aside, but I noticed the other day that Joe Biden's tan looks deeply suspicious. What is it about US presidents? <laughs> Maybe there's like a White House brand of self-tanning lotion. Maybe. It's not, it's not good. Anyway, what has the UK government been up to then, given our special relationship? Has it been advising? Influencing even? Well, only in the queue for the breakfast buffet it transpires, as the news broke last week that Dominic Raab was in fact on holiday at a five-star resort in Crete as Afghanistan was falling to the Taliban. Dominic Raab, the foreign secretary, by the way, just just in case anyone didn't know, because I quite often don't know who the Tory ministers are. Yeah, that reminds me. Under one of the stories about this on the BBC website, there was a sub-story titled... Who is Dominic Raab? Good and question. I thought, you've missed the fuck out of that. <laughs> it's okay, though, because he delegated a call to the Afghan foreign minister about evacuating translators who had been working with British forces to a junior minister, and he stayed on holiday. Awesome. So where was Lord Ahmad of Wimbledon, the minister with responsibility for Afghanistan, at the time of all this? 
Whoopsie, he was also on holiday at Later Transpired. <laughs> oh. A staycation. Thanks for asking. I've got a headache. Yeah, I know. It's, it's yeah. I mean, in, in what can only be described as, I don't know, how would you describe it? <laughs> Presentationally bad? I mean, that's mild. Yeah, at a time where most people still can't afford to pay for all the freaking hoops they'd have to jump through to go on holiday, slash respect the fact that they're not actually entitled to a foreign holiday in the current extremely COVID-y climate. Disorganised? Yep. Bumbling? Mm-hmm. Mind-bogglingly selfish? Grossly negligent? Those last two are my favourites. <laughs> I don't know, but it definitely doesn't reflect well that Rob then persuaded the Prime Minister to let him stay on holiday for another two days after he was ordered home on August the 13th. He eventually landed back in Britain in the early hours of Monday, August the 16th, after Kabul had fallen to the Taliban. I'm going to leave you with the words of our very own Hannah Dunleavy, who I think summarised this quite simply on Twitter when she said, I make a podcast with two other people and even we have a rule that everybody can't be on holiday at the same time. (laughs) She's not wrong. Who says the Conservatives don't have perspective? Me. And I doubt I'm alone as Liz Truss continues to mate like Father Dougal and tout trade deals with Australia, Brazil and Canada as big, when in fact they are small and far away. And yeah, yeah, I know Australia's geographically massive, but population and trade-wise, not so much. They've got loads of racism and misogyny-like, but we're not short on those here. Do you know what is close and enormous, Liz? Europe! Go figure. Still, perhaps Liz Truss realises she's going to have to roll out the big guns to sell these new trade deals to the British public, and ten new trade envoys have just been announced. It'll come as no surprise to you that eight out of those ten cats are men, and one of the women is Kate fucking Hoey. Oh, God, Christ, we're doomed. But are we? Now, I like to think I'm grown up enough to admit when I've made a mistake, Jen, and I've got to say I might be eating my words, if not Nando's chicken, because that deal with <laughs> Australia looks guaranteed for success at least because Truss has appointed former cricketer Ian Beefy Botham <laughs> as Britain's trade envoy to Australia. Oh, what wow. a relief! What a relief that she's chosen a man pretty universally hated in Australia, and who once tweeted his Mr. Dick Dangle to the world. He reckoned he was hacked, but Botham does have previous on getting his shredded wheat out. In his last ball balls delivery as a professional cricketer, he quote unzipped my fly and hauled out the meat and two veg. <laughs> the old man was dangling in the wind as I steamed in. Hold, hold, Jen. I think it's I think it's hold that makes me most giddy. <laughs> Just thudded to the ground. He's one of those guys, I reckon, who says something like, "I wish I had a twelve-inch dick instead of this monster." While like scratching his ankle. Thing is, we've all seen it, so you know. <laughs> I had to look it up again for this. And it... did you look it up again? I had to. It is horrific. It's it's still on the internet. Do you know what? I didn't even know. I didn't even know this had happened uh, until I was on holiday, not on holiday, it's when I was in America, I mean, it kind of was on holiday to be fair, but when I was in America, someone told me this had happened in a like youth hostel somewhere, and I was like, no way, and I said, because you know I'm going to have to look it up now, don't you? And he said, that's the only reason I tell people is so I can then watch their face <laughs> when they look it up. Do you remember the polymorph in Red Dwarf? Yeah. 
The baby polymorph. Yeah. It looks like the baby polymorph. Yes, it does look like the polymorph. Thank you for ruining one of my favourite programmes ever, Jen. Sorry. Anyway, I didn't think I'd be asking you this, Jen, but which star of the 1980s would you put in a government job? Over Ian Botham? Yeah, certainly not under Ian Botham. Um, Dog Tanyon, <laughs> Short Circuit, uh, like Mr Johnny Five. Um... <laughs> Nigel Mansell? Why not? Sam Fox? Shaking Stevens? Why not? Adamski? <laughs> no, you're right, Killer came out in 1990, so that's scuppered. Okay, you know what? Maybe the proof will be in the beefy pudding. I'll try to put my scepticism back in its box for a bit and instead leave you with these words from Ian Botham himself, spoken in November 2020 about him not spending much time in the Lords. I'm enjoying it and we'll be at Westminster more often when we get back to normal, especially when they are debating something I know about, <laughs> like sport or the countryside. Not much point if it's a trade deal with Japan. Oh dear. Ah, Liz clearly didn't read that interview. But in the same interview, he also said, you ride the torpedo till the end of the tube. And if that's not about pork markets, I'll eat my hat. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, Um, Would you like some good news, Mick? Not that that was bad news. Um, (laughs) Okay, well, let's start with the Paralympics have started. Or at least they will have done by the time anyone is listening to this. And man, I cannot wait to wake up to good news every single morning again for another 11 days. 10 days when this podcast goes out. So you've got 10 days to figure out where you turn next. I was going to say exit strategy, but under the current circumstances, that just seems bad in, in every sense. They don't go well, Jen. They don't go well. They don't. In the meantime, let's move on to this because there is more good news and fuck knows we need it. Mm-hmm. Over in that there Scotland, six pilot schemes have been set up by Transport Scotland to give free bikes to children from disadvantaged households. Hooray! Under plans announced last week, the pilots will test a number of different ownership, loan and subscription models in order to assess inclusion and accessibility before rolling out on a larger scale. That is good news. Good luck, Scottish pilot plan. May you fare well. Well done, Scotland. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where, as a weak, emotional woman, I'm wussing out. Seriously. I mean, I know time and time again it's proven that women have flaps of steel. Not least because a hell of a lot of women push a new human out of those very flaps. But not me. Not this week. Because I was going to talk about the latest Observer piece as part of its collaboration with the excellent Femicide Census, looking at what happens to the children of women killed by men and highlighting the lack of support in the UK for these traumatised youngsters. But I feel bleak just reading that sentence out. Just to let you know, activist and former solicitor Clario Callahan and Karen Ingala-Smith, chief executive of NIA, a sexual and domestic violence charity, founded the Femicide Census, and they estimate that at least 80 children a year in the UK are left motherless by femicide. Yeah, it is bleak, but it's important reading, so please do have a read. I will retweet it from our At Standard Issue UK Twitter account. But anyway, I wanted to have a bit of a positive spin on this week's SOTW, so let's do that, eh? Lord knows we need it. Mm. Incredible, indefatigable gender data gap fighter Caroline Criado-Perez has a weekly Invisible Women newsletter. I have mentioned it before. 
I shall mention it again. But she recently launched an initiative to support the newsletter, which is free to read but not free to produce. At first, the £3 a month was just a way of supporting CCP, but now she's created a membership-only area for the paid-up GFPs. That stands for Generic Female Pals, by the way. So GFPs can use the space to trade tips on fixing default mail issues, share their expertise, or, you know, ask for some, and generally plot world domination. And by that, I mean equality and PPE that actually fucking fits (laughs) women. You can sign up to CCP's newsletter at newsletter.carolinecriadoperez.com. It is always excellent and a font of incredible, beneficial information. Indeed, I'm looking forward to my next pair of running shoes being specifically designed for women's feet because, who knew, they not only need to exist, but they already do. CCP knew. That's who knew. Hurrah! I'm joined by Rachel Thompson, senior culture reporter for Mashable and author of the new book, Rough, How Violence Has Found Its Way Into the Bedroom. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for joining me. Hello. The title of the book, obviously, is it sort of seems fairly self-explanatory what it's about. But could you just mm. give me a little bit of a, a flavour of, of the kind of things you cover and also why you wrote it? Because it's actually inspired by a sort of personal experience you had, right? Yeah. So basically the book is, I think there's two main things that it covers. The narratives of sexual violence that we don't always hear about. The narratives that are almost excluded really from like kind of mainstream sexual violence conversations. And then the second element is it's about how um, systems of oppression manifest in our sexual culture and the ways that your identity can present a way that someone can harm you in a sexual context. I started thinking about grey areas, basically, which is a topic that is explored in the book. I wanted to explore those kind of more nebulous, difficult to define areas of sexual violence. It is very tricky, isn't it? Because I think, you know, the the statistics speak for themselves in terms of what actually is legally classified as sexual violence. You know, one in five women. This is just that we know about experienced sexual violence in their lifetime, which is a horrifying statistic but i would argue that it enormously underestimates the problem because just through you know conversations with with female friends so i want to talk a little bit about that idea of gray areas Mm. most of the women i know have experienced something that we would definitely classify as sexual violence Mm. but we don't call it that And Mm. even now, you know, like maybe at the time we didn't know it was sexual violence, maybe we did. And then it's one of those things that you think about and you kind of ruminate on and then later on you go, oh yeah, no, that was definitely really dodgy. But even now, at the point of knowing, we still don't call it that. Why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons why. This is actually like a, I mean, phenomenon, but I hate the word phenomenon when we're talking about this issue in particular so essentially what this is is it's something called unacknowledged rape or unacknowledged assault and so there needs to be a lot more research done on this topic but psychologists are looking at it and basically it's hugely prevalent that a lot of survivors of sexual violence and they they estimate that it's like anything between like 30 percent and 88 percent of sexual assaults just go completely unacknowledged And that means that the person that's gone through that experience, that violation, they don't recognise what's happened to them as rape or as assault, even though it has all the hallmarks of rape and of assault and meets that legal definition. 
And I should just add that I do think it's better to like look beyond a legal prism when we look at sexual violence, because obviously our laws in this country are not keeping pace with like the ways in which sexual violence is being committed, a lot of digital crimes. And so I think that's another element of why people often don't necessarily recognize or accept what's happened to them as sexual violence, because very often the law doesn't say that this is illegal. And a lot of people do look to the law as a kind of moral barometer. And if the law says this isn't illegal, then of course you're not going to categorize your experience as sexual violence because you haven't been told that it's wrong. But this unacknowledged rape, it's really, really prevalent. And I think that essentially there's a lot of reasons why this happens. First of all, something called situational ambiguity, which is essentially that when you think of the way in which we're taught, I think, through media portrayals of rape and sexual assault, we're we're kind of given this stereotyped idea that, you know, it's a stranger in a dark alleyway and that it's someone that you don't know. But in fact, actually, the vast majority of assaults are committed by people that we know. Often they these kind of violations, they take place in situationally ambiguous contexts. So in my experience, you know, I I consented to having sex with someone, but then they they did something within that experience that I did not, you know, I felt I didn't sign up for that. Mm. And it felt violating, it felt degrading. And it took me about a decade, basically, to acknowledge that that actually was sexual assault. But I didn't call it that for for 10 years. It's only when I actually started researching this book that I came to realise and accept. And that's, I think, because it was not this violent stranger rape. It was someone that I I really fancied, someone that I wanted to go out with and someone I wanted to see again, even mm. after that assault took place. One of the things you talk about, which is the language around this stuff, is sort of key here, isn't it? Mm. Because you talk about the, the nebulous way that media covers these things. Non-consensual sex and rape are the same thing. But they sound very different, don't they? Those two expressions sound very different. And one sounds much worse than the other. Yeah, this this idea of referring to something as non-consensual sex. I think once you start to call something sex, then you do not frame it as violence. Mm. And so this is another element that feeds into this unacknowledged rape and unacknowledged assault. We grow up in this environment where... You know, you see the conversations unfolding online, you know, an allegation against a high profile person. And you see all of these vile comments underneath it on Twitter, for instance, that will be like, well, you know, why didn't she leave? And like, oh, well, she said yes, though, didn't she? And, you know, you just look through that and you just think, what? You question yourself. You question, like, did that, was that sexual violence? You're led to question yourself. You're led to, like, not really believe yourself because this is just what society tells us you are going to be doubted and also it's really sad to say this but it's like what's the point is it worth speaking up but i think also i i have reported a sexual crime to the police before Mm. and i was strongly discouraged by the police from pursuing it because they were just like it's not going to be very nice for you if you do that's horrific yeah it is but that Mm. is the kind of situation we're in I want to just look at the law for a minute because the law is Mm. quite interesting actually and it doesn't say what I was expecting it to say in the legal definition of a rape one of the criteria that has to be fulfilled for it to be classified legally as rape is that the accused does not reasonably believe that the other person has consented that is extremely hard to prove is it not yeah, i would say so does the law need to change we're living in this country where rape is essentially decriminalized 
are existing laws that you know are in place for rape and sexual assault they do not protect us they do not protect survivors and I, I feel very conflicted when it comes to the law because I, I feel like that there needs to be a bit of skepticism I think carceral feminism for instance like is very much this idea that you know the only way to, to solve gender-based violence is to increase kind of convictions and to create legislation and I think that that fundamentally misses the fact that certain communities like for instance black and brown people are going to be disproportionately stopped by the police and sex workers for instance don't feel safe and they don't feel comfortable being able to report crimes that have taken place because they're worried that they themselves will be arrested Mm -hmm. i'm very skeptical that the law will provide solutions from that perspective and also just looking at the data as it stands even with laws in place for things like rape and sexual assault like they aren't working there is obviously the argument that you know we have a real problem when it comes to like digital sexual violence you know things like cyber flashing things like deep fake pornography the law has not been keeping pace Mm. so you have huge gaps in the law that mean that basically tech companies can ghost the, the people whose content, you know, has been uploaded to the internet and they don't have to do anything because there's no law in place. There was a law professor that I spoke to who talked about the expressive value of a law. On the one hand, you've got a law that's created that will lead to convictions and things like that. But you have, she talked about this expressive value being like, you know, essentially it raises awareness and it sends this message to people that this is illegal and it's morally wrong. And so there's there's also that argument as well. Some of the stats in the book are really interesting. There's so many things I could talk to you about. 33% of women think that it isn't rape if a woman was pressured, but there's no violence used against her. Less than half of the women who were asked in this survey by, I think it's the Violence Against Women Coalition you cite in the book, less than half thought it was okay to withdraw consent if they're already naked. One in ten think it's not rape if a woman is too drunk to consent or asleep. Like, these are terrifying statistics. These, This is yeah. what women think about the circumstances around rape and, and consent and stuff. So choking, hair pulling, slapping, etc. This is all kind of quite a for want of better words, normal part of sex. Over a third of UK women have reported this according to stats in your book. Again, something I know from my experience of reporting a crime to the police, they actually routinely ask you when you report a sexual assault Mm. about whether the perpetrator ever tried to choke you, basically. That's like a routine question that they ask in a sexual violence, domestic violence case, which I thought was kind of terrifying because, again, I do feel like it's a very mainstream thing that people do now. Mm. So there are things that, by law... You can't consent to. You can't consent to your own death and you can't consent to certain levels of violence against you, which, as you point out in the book, criminalises some consensual sexual activity between Mm. people. So what is the line? It's an interesting question. So, yeah, what you're referring to, obviously, is the R.V. Brown case from, I think it's 1993. And so, essentially, there was a ruling where, basically, after a a years long police case of like they basically surveilled a group of gay and bisexual men who had been basically engaging in consensual bdsm acts 
and then eventually they a group of them were given convictions. I think it's an example of institutional homophobia and also kinkphobia. It's a problematic ruling, but it is the reason why in English law we have this this legal line of what is essentially the border of what you can and can't consent to. Mm. So, for instance, you cannot consent, as you say, to your own death. You cannot consent to certain level of injury. I think it's something like something beyond like trifling injury. So if it kind of penetrates the flesh in any way, then that's something beyond what you can consent to. So for instance, it doesn't just apply to injuries because there are exceptions, for instance, in a sporting context, in mm. a surgery context, that it does mean that things like body modification, like tongue splitting, that's illegal and it's led to like actually recent convictions of a guy, I think he was a kind of works in piercings and he yeah. had been involved in consensual tongue splitting and mm. he got convicted for that. But yeah, it basically means that regardless of whether you've consented or not, to, for instance, you know, like uh, choking insects under the law in this country, it's considered illegal. And so from the BDSM standpoint, that's problematic because what we're saying is that because of this really homophobic and kinkphobic law that, you know, was established in the 90s, we now criminalise consensual BDSM acts. The other side of that argument is that the law is very clear on where you stand basically with mm. non-consensual choking it's a really difficult one basically this is definitely a bad word to use in this context but it's also really perverse that these completely consensual bdsm acts are illegal when yeah. we are seeing women killed by their partners in non-consensual acts of violence and nothing ever fucking happens to the people who've done it. Yeah. How can the law support one but not the other? I try really hard in the book to like just really demarcate because I think often in like media reporting on rough sex, which I think because of all of the coverage that the came out... The rough sex defence, yeah. Essentially, everybody grouped kind of rough sex be it consensual or non-consensual, into just one big umbrella term that I just think, on the one hand, you're talking about consensual BDSM acts that are being practised safely and with consent, you know, at the core. And on the other hand, you're talking about sexual violence and, you know, non-consensual choking that is not being practised safely, does not have consent. And I, I just think there's a real problem in the way that the media in this country conflates those two very different things and creates a lot of confusion in the public's minds as to what we're actually talking about. But, you know, as you say, even though there is that, you know, common law principle in place that means that you cannot consent to certain injuries, you cannot consent to your own death, that argument, the rough sex defence, was still being used in court in these horrific cases of women who'd been killed. So it legally actually should not have been you know permissible to mm. use that defense in court and so you know that's why i think a lot of the kind of legal community or the a lot of law professors are very skeptical that even now the rough sex defense has been banned they, they're just like will this actually change anything because it was already illegal so to the question posed by your book how has violence found its way into the bedroom the obvious answer is porn but that's not the only answer. And in fact, furthermore, there's not actually any research that definitively supports this, is there? 
Yeah, so again, this is a very complicated issue because I feel that there is a kind of flattening of discourse when we talk about what's causing sexual violence, right? And very often you'll get, you know, I've seen you saw it quite recently, I think, with the Everyone's Invited movement and a lot of people, you know, talked about porn being the cause of rape culture. And this is something that's not been proven in academic research. And there are a lot of issues in terms of basically just the methodology of of some of the studies that have proven an association, but they don't prove a causal link. Those two are very different things. It's a, it's a very tricky thing because I, I think in this country, as you'll have noticed with the you know the porn ban that was the, that they tried to bring in a few years ago there is an effort to limit access to porn and you know there is i think an understandable backlash to that as well because that's something that would severely affect sex workers and their income and i think that it would also you know from a kind of personal freedom it's essentially legislating the erotic imagination Mm -hmm. and there's a very understandable backlash and I think that sometimes the you know the argument of which obviously as I've said hasn't been hasn't been proven but this argument that you know porn is causing sexual violence is used in as a kind of argument for legislating pornography and basically banning people's access to it and so I think that it requires a bit more nuance than than has been given in a lot of media reporting but i think because we have this issue people are really reluctant to go into the kind of stereotypes and the tropes and the the misinformation that it does exist in mainstream pornography on, on you know these kind of tube sites the free porn sites and i think that it's a real shame that we feel we i, I certainly don't feel free to to speak critically because i don't want my words to be misconstrued as yet another argument to ban porn and i think a lot of people feel that they Mm. feel that tension and but i do think a lot of young people because we're not getting robust sex education i literally had nothing as Mm. sex education i was just shown oh you just get told don't get pregnant and don't get an std don't you basically that's pretty much it yeah yeah and they're just like you know, it's going to hurt the first time you have sex and then that's it, Mm. which also not a great thing to kind of create this idea that pain is default in in women's minds and young girls' minds. You know, there are so many issues that I could go into, but because young people are curious and they also get nervous when they are about to maybe have sex with their boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, for the first time, they want to know how to do things. And so of course instead of literally going up to the mum and being like mum can you tell me how to give a blowjob like mm. do you know what I mean like people will look it up on porn but you know you have to understand that obviously porn is entertainment it's not education mm. so it's not going to be thinking oh let's make sure that we've got consent negotiation in this scene let's make sure that you know a condom is used Let's make sure we're not disseminating harmful tropes about women, about women of colour. Let's make sure that this scene, which features a BDSM act, let's make sure that we're actually, you know, using all of the protocols that the BDSM community would typically use. I think a lot of adults will recognise this is entertainment. This is a fantasy that's playing out on a screen. But young people who aren't necessarily aware of that and who are just like, 
I want to know what sex looks like. We'll be like, oh, okay. I think that's right, and that certainly seems to make sense. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, anecdotally, a lot of things that I've read seem to support that. But what I would say is that it is grown men in their 30s doing this stuff as well. Grown yeah. men who didn't necessarily grow up on a diet of much more easily accessible and a hardcore pornography that children now have access to quite readily so why why is that happening i think basically it is it boils down to misinformation yet again and i think that there's there's another as well as obviously you know young people who are curious about sex and who are kind of logging on and and thinking oh that's what sex is like Mm. i also think for yeah let's use the example of you know men in their 30s there's a couple in the that's cited in the book that basically they were speaking to Layla from La 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 Let Me Explain who's a she's a sex educator and she's um really big on Instagram and basically the guy said that you know he basically had been choking his girlfriend during sex because he just thought that's what women want and I think he got that idea from watching porn and thought okay that's that's just what sex is like right and she didn't say anything to him and then one day he just was like listen like why do you love choking so much and she was just like i'm gonna be honest i really hate it and i only have been going along with this because i thought you really loved it and he was like i thought that you really loved it and so I do think that even among adults, you know, even those those statistics that you brought up earlier about, you know, the misconceptions that we have about about consent, right? That, you know, people people don't know what constitutes sexual violence. People still a lot of people don't know that consent can be withdrawn at any time. A lot of people still believe mm. that it's just this one off like little like almost signing a contract at the start of a sexual interaction that says no holds barred, anything goes. And you can't, you know, once you've said yes, Mm. then you don't have the right to withdraw that. And there's all these misconceptions about consent. But I think there's all these misconceptions that come from maybe watching porn that presents certain things as really, really mainstream. And I think that I'm in my 30s and, you know, I know that porn and things like that have maybe warped some of my ideas about what I think goes on Mm. in i'm conscious also i don't want to feed into this idea of saying that vanilla sex is the norm and anything outside of that is not because i don't think you know this idea of like normativity is a helpful one for anybody but um i think Mm. there's certainly this idea that basically if you if you grew up not really learning about sex that will not just be a problem for you as a young person but that will go on for a long time in your life How do you think violence has ended up in the bedroom? And what do you think we can do to change it? There's a lot of reasons why. And I think misconceptions about consent. I think these systems of oppression are a big, big thing. I think that, you know, the reason why violence happens full stop, you know, be it sexual violence, be it other forms of violence, you know, is because society as a whole... And the powers that be are okay with basically depriving whole sections of society of basic resources. And because of this inequality, that creates these conducive conditions for violence to occur and for it to be permissible and for it to go on unchecked. So I think that that's my main takeaway from especially exploring all of the systems of oppression and the way that they leave these kind of indelible scars on our sexual culture but also you know people who engage in our sexual culture 
and I think that it's those conducive conditions that take place because because we essentially live in this patriarchy. We, we live in a white supremacist patriarchy. And I do think that that's really the main reason. But I also just think that, that we need to start to think on a really basic individual level about ethical sexual behaviour and how we treat other people. And that's, I would say, a really important solution that I think that we should be all you know individually taking responsibility for like you don't have to love the person that you're having sex with you don't have to like them you don't have to want to see them again but i think that you should afford them the kind of basic dignity and respect of just caring about them on a just very basic human level and not wanting any harm to come to them and i just think that it does that even need to be said but i do i mean after like hearing from all the people i interviewed for the book I was like I think it does need to be said it's so interesting it really is I mean I could talk about this stuff for forever and ever and ever but also uh, your book has terrified me and made me never want to have sex again um, so, <laughs> no <laughs> Rachel your book Rough How Violence Has Found Its Way Into the Bedroom is published by Square Peg on the 26th of August which is tomorrow if you're listening to the podcast on Wednesday Rachel where can we find you on the socials to follow what you're up to yeah you can follow me on Twitter I'm on rbt9 on Twitter and then annoyingly, I do not have the same handle on Instagram. So I think it's Rachel V. Thompson with an underscore afterwards on Instagram, just to make everyone's lives very confusing. And you can read my writing on Mashable.com, which is my day job. So I write about sex and dating and all of the joy and fun that comes out of that realm. And you can read Rachel's book, of course, which is a very, very interesting read, and I would recommend it. And I think it is, like, sorry to say um, it's terrified me, because uh, there's a whole point, isn't it, if you bring these things out into the open, we can talk about them, and hopefully everyone can go into sex feeling a little bit more safe and enjoy it. Absolutely, yeah, to feel empowered and to feel good. Yeah, that's what I want. (laughs) I don't think I'm asking a lot. (laughs) No, I I don't think you are either, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixter Noonan. Hannah is at that Dunleavy and Jen is at InspiraGen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined on the Zoom by Neve Algar. Hello, Neve. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Hannah. Now, I was explaining to someone the other day who you were while I was driving through central London because I knew we had this interview coming up. And literally, you appeared in a billboard in front of me <laughs> as I was talking. That was for Deceit, the Channel 4 drama, obviously, which is one of the things we're here to talk about. Have you seen them? And what is that like to see your face that massive? I have. I've seen it. I've seen it many times. It scared the life out of me the first time I saw it. I was walking down the street and it just come out, it just come out of Sainsbury's and it was just there on a bus stop. And yeah, it was <laughs> very strange. Yeah, it's very strange to 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 see it because it's obviously it's it's for the show but it's also the two characters kind of side by side yeah. and I thought it was it, I think it's re- like what they've done is incredibly striking so it it does kind of catch you off guard in in, in many ways but yeah I, I don't think you could get used to your face on a billboard so let's talk about deceit I read in an interview that you weren't aware of the story 
before you read the script. And I find that really interesting because just to explain it to our listeners, it is the story of Lizzie James, not real name, the undercover detective who was sent to try to get Colin Stagg to confess to the murder of Rachel Nickell. And I was wondering, as someone who wasn't familiar with the story, when you read it, how hard did you find it to believe, given that it is kind of mad when it's laid out in front of you as as a as a story? Yeah, so I made a conscious effort not to Google the case or ask anyone around me what it was about. I just read the story as as the story because at the end of the day, it always has to be the story that carries the message as opposed to it just being it being a true a true crime drama. I was following Sadie's journey along the way and what what really struck me was just the way in which women were being treated and the way in which she was treated and how it was just so horrendous how everything was just handled and Colin Stagg and then went down the rabbit hole of actually looking into the case and realizing just how massive that was how how big of an investigation it was and it was and there's some parts of it where you could not kind of understand why you can completely get blindsided by the media in regards to what, you know, what the public were being told. Mm. It just really shocked me. And I, I was a quite emotional reading it as regards how the journey in which Sadie goes on and just, you know, this case ended the career of a female undercover officer who was emotionally and psychologically impacted by the experience. And for me, reading it was just hoping that female undercover officers wouldn't go through that again. And I think with the, the cultural appraisal of what we have now, I think it's very much we can look at it and and feel really, really feel this character, Sadie. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think the thing that really because I've seen all four of them and the thing that really leapt out to me was the psychologist who's played in a brilliantly just creepy manner by Eddie Marsan. At one point, he says that the chances of there being two men harbouring violent fantasies about harming women on Wimbledon Common at the same time was vanishingly rare. And I just thought, what universe does does he live in? (laughs) (laughs) What men is he looking at? It it seems so naive as to be just laughable, really. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the profile was, you know, a man that lives alone or with a parent has an interest in martial arts the profile was just so like it was, you, you were describing <laughs> the population yeah. you know um, <laughs> and I suppose what they have to understand as well is this was psychological profile that hadn't been explored before and it was the first time that they were using it within the UK it would only been they would only use psychological profiling with the FBI in America so for them they thought that this was cutting edge and I suppose you look at a character like Sadie who's been put into a position where literally she is the centre of the big investigation and a woman and wanting to prove herself. You can kind of understand as a character how you might overlook such massive holes. Yeah. Because you have to trust the people that that are around you that are being put in place that these they, they know what they're doing. Okay, that's interesting because we see her process in this. We see how... Sadie becomes Lizzie James and I wonder how similar is that to your process of becoming Sadie? 
That's interesting. So I actually spoke to a, a few female undercover officers that would have been working at the time during the 90s. And one woman said to me, she was like, you know, building a legend, which is what they call the character that they're going to then inhabit for a job. It's like building a character for, for an actor. You know, you have to get the backstory perfect. You can't you can't kind of let that guard down. You can't let anything slip because the minute you do, and if you were to let anything slide you could end up dead and mm. I was like oh yeah so I get another you know I get another take and I get another run of it but you don't as, a, as an undercover officer and I think that you take that you take that pressure and put that in the back of your head as for for a character for an actor and in the in those moments it's the idea of her just trying to drill in this backstory that for her is so extreme like the the satanic you know, because it, that, that's what they believe that Stag was into, was in, into these satanic rituals. And so I suppose for her, this is, it's such extreme, for, for a woman to put herself in that headspace, mm. it's incredibly disturbing. And you see the character being, being affected by, by that and having to, to kind of manifest these stories in her head to, that she has to believe. And you, like you, you do believe that she is actually saying these things what she's saying is is the truth and that's I suppose for Sadie where the the lines begin to blur and I said to Amelia our writer like we need to kind of see that and see have a moment where you see her rehearsing it to the point where she does actually believe what she's saying is true but then also snap out of it and I think then she went back and we she incorporated that scene I think was in the in the bathroom where Sadie is kind of acting at her best yeah believing everything that she says she does a really satisfying full-on scream into the mirror which I think we all did in lockdown at one point (laughs) yes that that moment of pure frustration yeah we talk a lot about violence against women on television and I think deceit falls well into what I would call sort of a new style that people are trying and yes keep keep trying it people which is you know, to try and show what is essentially a really, really gruesomely horrible, in fact, two really gruesomely horrible murders, but without doing it in a gratuitous way. And I think Deceit manages to tread that line very well. Is that important to you when you're looking at scripts? With this story in particular, we're incredibly sensitive um, as regards that. And I think you don't show something and you show the effect it has on the, the people and the characters around it it's it's, in, it's way stronger because as you said it, it is it's far too it's indulgent and you don't need to show I think for this particularly it was important to maintain the sensitivity surrounding how both those women lost, lost their lives you can see Neil McCormick he plays the scene in which he sees that crime scene on Sadie's face and not on the on the picture itself because mm. you don't need it. Absolutely. You do rock quite a few 90s fashions in this, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> You're single-handedly doing your job to bring back the crochet cardigan in this, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it occurred to me when I was watching it, I thought, I, God, I owned two of those, literally exactly the same as you had on in that. But I thought, what <laughs> purpose did they serve? They didn't keep you warm. <laughs> yeah, Charlotte, our our costume designer, she was amazing, and also Amelia. Amelia was around. 
she she had a mass influence on on Sadie's costumes, especially all the rave sequences. Mm. And I think there's very iconic pieces of of costume and and hair that really define <laughs> define an era. And yeah, the crochet the crochet <laughs> <laughs> the top was one of them. Oh, we actually shot that. We shot those. That was in winter as well, or autumn. No, it was in winter. What am I talking about? So we there's you know the, all those the park dates with um, Sadie and, and Colin. That was in the height of winter and it was freezing. I bet. <laughs> yeah, and we did the costume fitting like in the late summer of spring. And um, <laughs> I, I regret massively. I was like, oh yeah, no, this is gonna be fine. Honestly, you know, between takes, we'll throw on it, <laughs> keep warm. Um, <laughs> And and also the guys, the shirts. I was I was watching episode one there, and I just I love Harry Treadway's character's um, fashion and, and the slick back hair. I think it's it's so iconic. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you had something else on in it that I owned, which we do, you were wearing. This is back when you were actually Sadie, not when you were being Lizzie. You had a blue shirt that had like embroidered shoulder like stripes on it, and I also owned that. Yeah, I didn't realise that what I was the look I was rocking in the nineteen nineties was undercover police detectives. That's what, that's it. We didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> it clearly was. Let's move on to censor because it's kind of. I mean, having not seen censor yet, um, because it's not out yet, it, it feels like it's in a sort of similar area in that it's about a woman who is doing a job that has the potential to take her over. So I wonder if you could just give us a, a couple of sentences about what censor is about. Okay, so Censor is a psychological horror set in the 80s in England and it follows Enid Baines, who's a film censor and whose job it is to cut explicit and disturbing content from movies that she feels is shouldn't be watched by the public and she watches this one particular film. It has this very profound effect on her and she, when she was a child, she, she lost her sister and when she watches this movie, she is convinced that the girl in it is, is in fact her sister and she goes on this journey to try and figure out if, if that is in fact her sister in the movie. So tell me, Neve, are you drawn to the darkness or do people just keep offering it to you? Because you do seem to have a sort of a real knack for women on the edge, would that be the right way to say it? <laughs> it's interesting because I've been asked that a lot recently and I hadn't really thought of it. Until <laughs> you start to look at everything, but... I think that I'm always trying to find characters that I suppose in some way would be labelled a victim, but not to play them that way. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it's always, I never see people that have had something terrible happen to them or go through something traumatic. I never see them as victims. I see them as someone who's who've who've had these experiences and had to, had to deal with it as best they can and that event doesn't define them if that makes sense absolutely so I don't know I think there's a huge amount of strength that goes with these these women and I don't put Enid and Sadie in the same bracket I think they're very different I think the stories are yes they deal with I suppose trauma but I think everyone's got trauma in their lives whether it's it's just it's big or small and with this character of Enid Baines, it was exploring the idea of repressed memories. And that, for me, was such a fascinating idea to to delve into, I suppose, the part of the human psyche of re- repressed memory and psychological distortion. For me, it's just learning about that and 
trying to represent something that I suppose we haven't seen done before. And especially in a female character, we see that a lot with male characters depiction in films. And I don't know, I think it's very important that we see a female's perspective of it. Absolutely agreed. And I will say that you talking about victims who aren't victims, your arrival in The Virtues, in which you turn up and knock a man out with the the most incredible right hook. I'm guessing that isn't the first punch you've ever thrown because that was spot on. I mean, that's the perfect example of that. A woman who we could feel sorry for, but somehow we don't because mm. she's 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 fighting fighting back and look quite literally fighting back. I, I'm guessing you you did box at some point in the past. I did, yeah. But it was interesting that because Shane Shane talked about that and how he wrote the script you know he he would describe like in that sequence he described as like we we see this woman on the driveway and she's getting harassed by her boyfriend and looks like she's going to be in you know it looks like she's in danger and what he's done there is he's had like Anna stand by the window and she's just kind of going no no wait so wait for this now you know and what you do is you take a situation that we've seen done so many times before but actually just flip it on its head and actually go, no, there's women out there that would be well able to look after themselves. And we are able to look after themselves. It's just with that Dina character, she's equipped in certain aspects of her life that she can, she's able to control. And and there's a physicality exposed to her that she's able to call on, but emotionally she's not as, as equipped, you know, she's, she doesn't, it's, it's easier for her to kind of solve things in a physical sense, as opposed to in a mental sense, because for her, that's such an easier option. Do you know, looking at that experience, I mean, Shane Meadows, Jack Thorne, Stephen Graham, that's quite the sort of the triumvirate of brilliant men working in Britain at the moment. I'd like to know a bit more about working with Stephen Graham because I bloody love him. He's a wonderful human being, Stephen is. I would consider him one of my very good friends now and always checking in and seeing how I'm getting on. And working on that was... You know, it was my first introduction into TV and I couldn't have gotten a better, you know, mentor mm. through that in Stephen. And, you know, he said to me, he's like, you're, you're only going to be as good in a scene as the person opposite you. So, you, you know, this is a teamwork. We have to work together to to create this. There's no one singular person in a scene. If, you know, you it's a combined effort. And and that to me is like a, that whole experience is, is just to be generous and you have to be generous in the sense of of giving the other actor opposite you just as much as what you're going to do when you're on camera. So why he makes everything look so easy is because he's put hours in the night before to make it look as though he's just kind of come up with it on the spot. Mm. But he's a master at improvise, but that isn't just, you know, winging it on the day. It's come from hours spent the night before actually going through everything and kind of and uncovering every kind of option you could have in that in that scene and that is why he is so good at what he does he makes it look effortless because he works incredibly hard in that in the virtues he has something and actually you have a touch of it in deceit a kind of visible miasma even though that's like an impossible thing to have in that you can almost sort of smell him through the television <laughs> and the bits in deceit where Sadie's sort of just so hung over so drunk so messed up so sweaty that, that she sort of also has that feeling about her so yeah I mean fantastic achievement thank you <laughs> I'm sure you smell absolutely delightful in real life but <laughs> but Sadie seems like she yeah she had something else going on there 
I wanted to ask you one more question because while we're on television, I can't not mention Raised by Wolves, which I, it's for me, it's interesting because I watched it because Ridley Scott had made a television programme, but I did genuinely don't like sci-fi and yet I loved it. Well, I mean, that's completely different kettle of fish to working with Shane Meadows, I would, I would yeah. imagine. But but how was that for you, being on that massive, massive stage? Yeah, it was a whole other education into filmmaking. It's, you know, you, you're using your utmost imagination to to create this world. But also at the end of it, at the centre of it, it's still like a family drama, but set on yeah. a different planet. And so... Yeah, you. It was it was mind blowing to be working with the likes of the likes of Ridley Scott. Childhood was kind of defined by his movies, and so I think for me it was just trying to absorb as much of the knowledge that was being handed out on set, and to get you know to get given an opportunity to play a character like that. Like I've always wanted to play an action character, mm. and that you know that for me is it's just that turning up and playing. You know, it didn't feel like work. Can you talk about anything else that's up next, what you're doing next, or is that all under wraps? I'm currently just in Ireland filming a project with um, Florence Pugh, The Wonder. So um, that's it's a, it's a film by written by Emma Donoghue, who wrote Room, complete opposite of what I've done over the last couple of years. It's set just after the Great Famine in Ireland in the 1800s. And yeah, it's the first period drama that I've ever done. So I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, that, that period is so interesting. I love Irish history. Are people able to communicate with you? Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter under Neva Olger. And on, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on that. I'm on the Twitter sphere. What is your relationship with social media? Kind of limited as much as I can, but I, I do love I do love Instagram. I do love I just love photographs. I'm a sucker for a good meme. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole generation now that don't know anything but social media so you know I look at my my nieces and nephews and they learned how to use a phone before they could could walk which is crazy so I think we just have to I've just embraced it and just kind of realized this is just a second a second language now oh Neve, this has been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for your time thank you Hannah it's so lovely to chat to you you play ball like a girl go on do one kid Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where we do a wheelie in celebration of all things women's sport. Is a wheelie actually a BMX move term? I think it's probably just those dickheads showing off on Kings and High Street, isn't it? But I, I don't know. You get where I'm going with this. So I left you on a tantalising cliffhanger in today's intro, where I told you I might return to the story of my first football match in 18 months in today's Jenny Off The Blocks and look, here I am. So I don't want to keep going on about this issue because I am relatively sure that you'll all agree with me on this given that you would probably find this podcast too woke in inverted commas if you were not in agreement on this. But look, can we, if we don't already, all agree once and for all that booing players taking the knee is really shit. I was really aggrieved to hear fans of my club booing players who took the knee on Saturday and it actually ruined my entire experience of the match. I mean, I'll be honest, the fact that we went on to lose 2-0 really didn't do much to improve my experience and also I recognise my enjoyment of the match to experience isn't really the point here but I have to say I felt really ashamed to be standing alongside people who were booing the players and it was just a really 
horrible way to start the match. Now, I've been tweeting about all this already, so I won't go on and on, but I thought it was worth saying, even to people who probably do agree with me on this, because of a random conversation I had with a stranger on Newington Green at the weekend, who I was asking about her church. Hello, Roberta, if you started listening to the podcast after our conversation. She told me that the Black Lives Matter sign outside their church had been defaced, and that they'd initially thought they would just sort out a new one, but they were now umming and ahhing over whether it was actually more important to leave it there so that the people in their echo chamber could see that this is a real thing that's happening. Prior to Saturday, I don't think I really understood that this booing is a real thing, that it's just kind of isolated incidents here and there. I know we saw it in the England matches, but it still feels quite disconnected to me. So it isn't, and I think we need to do something about it. Right, onwards and upwards, more golf, because that's something women do now. Congratulations Anna Nordquist, who won her third major title at the weekend after claiming victory at the Women's Open in Carnoustie. Is that how you say it? I hope so. With 12 under par. England's Georgia Hall, who you may remember I spoke of last week, finished second on the leaderboard with 11 under, and she was tied with Sweden's Madeleine Sagstrom and the US's Lizette Salas. It was apparently thrilling with a six-way tie at one point, and Nordfist said she could only dream of winning the British Open. Georgia Hall features again after she was picked alongside compatriots Charlie Hull and Mel Reid to represent Team Europe in its defence of the Solheim Cup title in the US next month. Hall and Hull, it's hard to say, qualified automatically while Reid was one of the captain's picks made by Scotland's Catriona Matthew. Leona Maguire is the first Irish woman to make the team. Also captains picks Celine Boutier, Matilda Castren, Nana Kurtz, Madsen and Madeleine Sagstrom, while Anna Nordquist, Sophia Popov, Emily Pedersen and Carlotta Saganda all qualify automatically. And the Solheim Cup starts on August the 31st and you can watch that on Sky should you be so inclined. Now something I am, truth be told, a bit more interested in, and that is the BMX World Championships. A huge congratulations to 22-year-old Bethany Shriver, fresh from her crowdfunded gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics. She's only bloody gone and won the Women's BMX World Championships to add another trophy to what is already looking like quite a full cabinet. She's the first woman to hold both BMX Supercross titles at the same time. It's a comfortable victory after the title holder, American Elise Willoughby, crashed out and she said afterwards that she felt pretty chill about it. I am so excited to see how her career unfolds. That's all for me this week. I'll be back with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, what film had us howling at the moon this week? This week we watched, and I am nailing my colours to the mast early on here, the best werewolf movie ever made, 1981's An American Werewolf in London, which came out on August the 21st, 40 years ago. Hang on. Best werewolf movie ever made? What about Twilight? Best werewolf movie ever made, 1981's An American Werewolf in London. Smart, funny, scary, and with the most accurate depiction of Yorkshire you've ever witnessed. Seriously, that pub scene could have been filmed in my old local, The Big Six, in case you're wondering. This John Landis oddball horror comedy is filled with dark humour and gory thrills. But wait, actually, I'm meant to stay impartial for a bit, right? Right, so let's have some facts. I mean, more facts. What I just said were facts. Anyway, An American Werewolf in London contains one of the best werewolf transformation scenes out there. 
that is not me talking, it's the Oscars, which not only gave the award to Rick Baker, but created the Academy Award for Best Makeup and Hairstyling category just so they could pay tribute to Baker's astonishing work on American Werewolf. Baker went on to win the Academy Award for Best Makeup a record seven times from a record 11 nominations. The makeup and special effects are incredible and I think mostly absolutely stand up today, particularly that transformation scene. And Baker's gong-bagging innovation is aided by actor David Norton, who plays David Kessler, our titular Wolfman. Wolfman? Wolfman. Wolfman. Superman. Wolfman. (laughs) Batman? (laughs) Don't know. Wolfman, who really sells the pain of the transformation process. American Werewolf was a critical and commercial success at the time, winning the 1981 Saturn Award for Best Horror Film, as well as that Oscar. And from a fairly small budget of $5.8 million, it took $62 million at the box office and went on to become a bona fide cult classic. Now, director John Landis had already made a name for himself with 1978's Animal House and 1980's The Blues Brothers, and you can see the hallmarks of both of those in American Werewolves. Phenomenal, full-on, 90-second Piccadilly Circus rampage scene. It's gang-busting, car-bust, wolf-human carnage, reminiscent of Animal House's Deathmobile Parade and that final car chase in The Blues Brothers. Although, you know, with an added ripped-off head bouncing across a bonnet. So Landis had already proven his way with vehicular madness and oddball comedy, but you simply cannot ignore American Werewolf's legacy when it comes to comedy horror. I mean, sure, George A. Romero's 1978 classic Dawn of the Dead is also very funny, but there's no doubt Landis picked up that ball slash ripped off head and ran with it. So Jen, we've chatted on the podcast before about how all three of us are what Hannah terms windy when it comes Mm. to horror movies. And to be fair, despite this being a firm favourite of mine since I first saw it at the way too young age of eight, this most recent watch marked the first time I made it all the way through without covering my eyes. Come on. Had you seen it before? I had not seen it before. No, never. And I shall tell you for why. As a youngster, I had a thing about wolves. Not a fan. Not as in Ooh, Wolverhampton. Not, not like a sexy thing about No, wolves. and not, not like Wolverhampton Wanderers. Um, I didn't have a thing for them either. Like, I, I was really scared of wolves, mostly because of Morgrim the Wolf in the BBC Narnia adaptation. I mean, that is terrifying. It is terrifying, but the thing, the, the reason why... I still don't really like looking at pictures of Morgrim the Wolf, but one of the reasons why... <laughs> do you do why, it often? Do you test yourself? No, every now and again, my fucking brother, like, <laughs> texts me a picture or something like that and just uh, be like, uh, and I'm like, oh! you yay sibling yeah so but it's it's mostly because he looks like part like a man and part like a wolf but not in the way that you're like a wolfman does no like a (laughs) like a part thespian with like a drawn on like little black nose and like the badgers and the anyway i digress (laughs) i'm going on a narnia thing here i'll get off it right jen come out of the wardrobe i'll try I fucking hate the wardrobe. Right, I'm back. <laughs> so, yeah, so I was a bit scared of wolves as a youngster, so this is something that I have managed to avoid. I think I was actually scared of the thriller video, which, of course, is also made by Landis. Landis and Baker, yeah. yeah. And I have to make a confession at this stage, which is that knowing as I am, as Hannah says, a bit windy about horror films, I did actually Wikipedia it before to read what was going to happen and to have a better idea of where to not watch. 
And so <laughs> I did have to cover my eyes or actually what I did was just pull my glasses down my nose a little bit so that I couldn't see what was happening on screen when it happened. Okay, so me asking, had you seen it before? I should have probably said, did you see it this time? I listened to it all. I just didn't watch all of it. So what I did was I read the plot in Wikipedia. And so I watched the first time Jack comes back, but I couldn't, I I didn't want to risk the second and third times. Yeah, Jack was the bit that used to scare me. Yeah, it's just just the idea of it made me feel quite gippy, to be honest. So um, in Wikipedia, the entry is a yet more decomposed. (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) oh! leave that <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't watch the decapitation scene oh that is funny though because he's it's the arsehole policeman and you just see the head bouncing across the bonnet but that whole scene is absolutely outrageous yeah I missed quite a lot of it to be honest so so that's that's what I've not seen I listened to it all though Mick it sounded hectic <laughs> okay well actually the plot is pretty simple Two American college kids, David and his pal Jack, played by a marvellous Griffin Dunn, and he is probably my favourite character, even though I couldn't watch him for a good two-thirds of the film uh, until recently. Anyway, they are backpacking around Europe, kicking off their adventures on the Yorkshire Moors. It's wet, because Yorkshire, and so they seek shelter in The Slaughtered Lamb, a pub inhabited by some incredible British acting talent, including Brian Glover, David Schofield, Lila Kay and Rick Mayall. None of them are pleased to see these two young books. And when Jack asks about the pentagram on the wall, the locals get hostile, mutter the warnings, beware the moon and stay on the roads, lads, keep clear of the moors. I went Lancashire instead of Yorkshire then and forced David and Jack to leave. Obviously, they immediately accidentally wander onto the moors, oops, and are attacked by a marauding wolfman. Jack is killed outright, David is savaged, and just as the wolf is about to finish him off, He's shot by the locals, who, it turns out, do have a conscience after all. The wolf becomes a man again, and the lie that the lads were attacked by an escaped lunatic is put out. Fast forward, and David wakes up in a London hospital, tended by nurse Alex Price, Jenny Agatha, and Dr Hirsch, John Woodvine, and he quickly descends into what he presumes is madness, horrific nightmares and visits from his dead pal Jack, telling him he's a werewolf and that unless David kills himself and ends the wolf's bloodline, Jack is forced to roam as the undead and is going to be joined by a lot more of David's victims. Alex is having none of this and puts it down to PTSD, while Dr Hirsch proves more inquisitive and drives to Yorkshire to find out more. And it turns out that Jack wasn't wrong. After his first full moon rampage, David's wraps up a death count of six, all of whom joined Jack in a porn cinema, obvs, to try to convince David to take his own life and put them all out of their undead misery. But it's too late. The full moon's back and David's gone wolfman again. Cue that, that, that Piccadilly Circus carnage before he is ultimately trapped and surrounded in an alleyway by the police. Alex runs down the alley in an attempt to calm David by telling him that she loves him. Wolf David appears to recognise her for a brief moment before he lunges forward and is shot by police. Well done, Mick. Thanks. Yeah, good stuff. And I would just say that that is the, the ending with that song is just chef's kiss wonderful he does a he does a lovely job with that i liked it it's so good isn't it i mean all of the needle drops in this film which are all moon related are excellent but that that particular version of blue moon the ending is really quite sad and quite Mm. moving and it's just loads and loads of action then cut to that oh it was just a film i I like that a lot Mm. 
it showed the humour in the film, I thought. So, yeah, taking into account that some of it was very, very blurry for you indeed, what did you make of American Werewolf? So, this is tricky because, obviously, it is not my genre of choice. I am... I do not enjoy gore particularly, which is weird because I was thinking... Yeah, I was thinking about that. But I think that's because I've watched it so, so, so many times, Aliens, that A, I know exactly when to turn away and when I'm not going to like something. And also I think you become massively desensitised to it because you've seen it that many times. Yeah, I think this is my Aliens because I watched this when I was very young and you watched Aliens when you were like way too young for it. And also I don't know what it... I don't know what any of the stuff actually looked like because I didn't watch it and so like it's kind of like when you read a book sometimes you know like some horror films it looks daft it doesn't look real and sometimes it does so I don't know but it's like when you read a book and you have to imagine it and sometimes what you imagine is way worse than what it actually is so I might have seen it and been like oh yeah that's funny but I mean I don't know I'm looking at your face now (laughs) thinking maybe I wouldn't have done (laughs) You scared yourself with Wikipedia. It happens all the time, mate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's. I thought there were bits of it that I really enjoyed. I thought the humour, you know, it, I don't think the humour is always that obvious. Sometimes I think it's quite subtle. And then bits of it I thought were hilarious, like when he says to the rotting corpse that I couldn't see, you look terrible <laughs> at the end. It's <laughs> like really well done and the policeman when he's trying to get himself arrested and he's running around and he's like <laughs> slagging off the Queen and Winston Churchill and things like that and things that he that obviously they think would offend the British character and I think they're probably right I think you know even now you probably <laughs> think, get yeah, yourself in trouble on, if you went to Trafalgar Square and shouted the Queen's a man someone would take offence if that. there were any English people there which there probably wouldn't be then possibly yes Talk to me about the transformation scene. As someone who is a bit windy, did you find it scary or did you love it or did you think it was well done? No, so I have actually seen that before on like one of those like scariest moments, whatever, like talking head shows on like Channel 4. You know, they did like them about everything for a period of time. Oh yeah, I'm just sort of a bit surprised that you would watch one called The Scariest Moments given I mean it must have been that. Me. It must have been that. I don't know what it was. And you're quite right, that does seem like a weird thing for me to watch. Maybe it wasn't that. But anyway, I have seen it on something like that. Uh-huh. And I don't think it's particularly scary. I do think it's really, really well done. Mm. I don't think the Wolfman himself <laughs> like necessarily stands up particularly but I guess it would be done by CGI now which is what they did with Twilight and to be honest that doesn't look great so I think uh, the best actual werewolves that I've seen because mm. you're right it is a man in a wolf suit yeah. but I quite, I quite like that because what would a werewolf be? It is kind of a man in a wolf suit right? Yeah. But is on True Blood and basically the CGI just gets them turning from human straight down on all fours and they just become an actual wolf. Yeah. They don't look like they've tried to make it a werewolf, more just a wolf that was a man. But what's missing from those transformations is the pain. I think that's really yeah. key. I think, yeah, no, you're right. That's what they do in Twilight. He just looks like a wolf. He's just a CGI wolf. But I just want to mention a tweet I saw recently because it really, really, really made me laugh. For anyone who's not familiar with the Twilight trilogy, 
Is it a trilogy that there's fucking loads of them anyway? It feels like there's at least 84 of them, Jen. For anyone who's not familiar with it, basically there's a love triangle between a person, a werewolf and a vampire. And she's got to choose between the vampire and the werewolf. And I recently saw someone tweet and I can't remember the context of it at all, but they just tweeted, just fuck the wolf. And uh, <laughs> I think sage advice for anyone listening, really, just, if you're ever in that dilemma. I think about it quite a lot. We're way off topic, but vampires don't fucking sparkle. Shall we talk about the women in American Werewolf in London? The women. There aren't many, so it's going to be a a short (laughs) chat. Yeah, so it does start off with some light-hearted bants about who they want to bang. You can also add to that that Agatha isn't much more than a pretty-faced love interest in this. She doesn't really get much to do. But... I would say that in the sex scene between Alex and David, it's her pleasure that gets the focus, which is a win. It's a win now, let alone in 1981. Yeah, it doesn't feel gratuitous, particularly. You do see her boobs. Yeah, well, I didn't even notice it. And as you know, I am quite trained to a gratuitous You're our go-to. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I didn't really notice it, particularly. It didn't feel gratuitous. It didn't feel like, you know, gross or anything in in any way and gross uh do you know what i mean like it didn't feel like (laughs) oh why is that there or or that's nasty or whatever and if you see you know maybe you do see a gratuitous tip but you see his bum and his pubes when he climbs out of the wolf enclosure so it's you know it's an equitable nudity situation mother a naked american man has stolen my balloons (laughs) Yeah, obviously there is a lot more gratuitous sex in the porn film that is on at the porn cinema where Jack ushers David in to have that last showdown about please just take your own life so that we can all die properly. And a little fun fact, the actress in See You Next Wednesday, which is the name of the porn film playing at the cinema, is credited as Brenda Bristol's lovely stuff. Lovely jubblies, presumably. I mean... Absolutely. And even that is funny rather than gratuitous because she like she takes a phone call halfway through. A guy turns up at the door and he's like, what are you doing with my wife? And the bloke goes, what? Who are you? And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. Wrong number. (laughs) It's just really funny. Obviously, I didn't see that bit because I was (laughs) my glasses down my nose. But it sounded like it was meant to be funny more than anything else. But I also saw an article recently because obviously it's 40 years old. Um, yeah. There was an article in The Guardian over the over the weekend that I read when I was sort of doing my Googling about it. And um, it compares the film to a porno, basically. And, like, the build-up and the kind of, like, delayed gratification and blah, blah, blah. Because you have to wait mm. an hour for that transformation scene. That's true, yeah. Then after the transformation scene, it's, like, quite a kind of frantic, for want of better words, bang, 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 bang. And then it's done. So I think that's what they were getting at. I can see that. While we're talking about the transformation scene again, Mm. what I love about American Werewolf is it could have just been that transformation scene. It could be that the rest of it, there was a fit, not a fear, because I've seen it fairly recently, but like the the worry is that that's so amazing that that other bits of the film kind of bask in its glory rather than standing up for themselves, which I don't think is true. I think it's great. But yeah, John Landis, actually, one of his regrets as a director was that he thinks he let the transformation scene go on for too long. He said he was so wowed by Rick Baker's work and what he had achieved that he probably let it run on a bit. And I'm I'm going to disagree with Landis. I like how long it takes for David to change. I think it's all brilliant. And you get to see the machinations of his, his body changing. 
Yeah, I think it's really good. I think it's the high point, really, isn't it, of the film. And I think it's good that it goes on so long. Because it, it does go on a bit, but it doesn't really feel like it does. And there's a point to it, do you know what I mean? Like, the idea mm. is to show that it's painful, that it's a process that he's going through. And I think it works really well. So I disagree with him, too. I was left with one big question after my most recent watch of many watches of American Werewolf. And, Jen, you will have heard this rather than seen this. It will have been a glasses down the nose moment. But I will ask you this question. If you knew there was a killer wolfman on the loose and you'd seen it in the newspapers, mm. six people had died, it was pretty much like, is it a beast? There's something out there, mm. right? And it looked like the police had got this thing trapped in a cinema and were trying to like hold it in. Would you run towards that? Because no. in the final scene, people are running in from other cities. They're just coming in going, well, I want to get involved <laughs> instead of running away. No way, man. I'd be in that fucking wardrobe again. <laughs> so, Jen, let's ask the question, rated or dated? I'm going to give you a really infuriating kind of cop-out answer now because... Good, stuff. Yeah, because I do think that it is dated in some respects. It's very obviously made in 1981, but it can't help that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that all of the makeup does stand up now. I think the wolf transformation scene is brilliant and mm -hmm. acted really well, but I don't know that the wolfman looks great now. But as a film, I think that it still achieves what it sets out to achieve. Okay. You didn't say the R or the D word, but I've got that covered. Okay. It's rated, rated. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're not here for next week's Rated or Dated. You are having some well-deserved time off. But Hannah and I are going to be watching A Streetcar Named Desire, which is 70 years old. Bloody hell. 70. Wow. Keeping to the werewolf theme, I'm going to end this with one of my mum's favourite jokes. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Anne. I used to be a werewolf, but I'm all right now. Standard issue for all women.